turn to the gospel according to Luke as we continue our study of this account, uh, this account of the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know by the inspiration and superintendence of the Holy Spirit, Dr. Luke tells us in chapter 1 that he also has decided to take up or to as undertaken, he says, to compile a narrative to write an orderly account of things that Jesus said and Jesus did. He did this by way of investigation. He's speaking to eyewitnesses. He did all this, it says in chapter 1, for a man named Theophilus. So that, chapter 1, verse 4, that he too, Theophilus, may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In other words, I want to be sure that you understand what has been said and done through the ministry of Jesus, through eyewitnesses and investigation. And now as we move through this historical account, we find ourselves in chapter 8, verse 22 through 25. Um, Jesus has been ministering, walking through Galilee, north of Jerusalem. He's healing the sick, casting out demons, cleansing the defiled. He's even raising the dead. And we said earlier he did not come to, to, to do such mighty things under the guise of a magician or to somehow to get some applause from the crowd. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the anointed king, the anointed one. The king has come to announce this inauguration of the eternal kingdom that he is brought into reality and he's the you know he's doing it through the preaching of the gospel he's exercising his kingly authority and power over all created things and the response to that message that we've been seeing week after week is a response to what Jesus said to repent turn from your sins and believe on the one true king stop trying to be the king and lord of your own life but to repent and believe on Jesus he will go to the cross he will bear uh, uh, the father's wrath for sin as he suffers and dies as our substitute make an atonement for sins on the cross rise from the dead victorious over sin death and justifies sinners gives them new birth and then he welcomes us through the cross through the gospel into the family of God we also said, as Jesus has been preaching and healing, he's also, uh, we've been able to hear and to, uh, to see Jesus teach his disciples what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Christ. Last week we learned that genuine disciples uh, are those who receive the word, remember the parable of the good heart, who receive the word uh, in the good soil and are now lights in a dark place. They're lights in a dark world. Let me turn to chapter 8 so I can get there too. They're lights in a dark world. That's their new identity, right? We said that last week. We're not, we're not to hide. We're not to dis, uh, close. We're not to uh, put under a bushel or under, a, a, lamp, under a, a, a glass the light of the gospel shining our new identities. We're to, to be lights into the world. We've learned that Jesus is living in us. He is the light of the world. He's the torch with the lights. Uh, we, and, and by that also we expose darkness. We talked about that last week. And since we are lights of the world, Jesus says in chapter 8 that we are, we encourage, we are exhorted to be careful how we uh, uh, careful how and what we listen to, right? Remember that in chapter 8. We, we, we are to heed the word. We are to respect and revere the word of God. And that will help us to become brighter lights and have a greater understanding of the revelation of God as we listen to the word of God. And lastly, we saw in chapter uh, 8, verse 21, that when we come to, to, to Christ by faith alone, 
but by grace alone, through faith alone, we are to live a life of obedient children. Verse 21 of chapter 8, Jesus said, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it, right? And I, love to, I have to say this, I just feel like it's, it's necessary every Sunday if I have to, until I'm gone. We obey God not to gain favor, not to gain forgiveness. Somehow obeying his commands will equal pardon or equal being forgiven and accepted by God. No, we are called to obey because we are forgiven. We are accepted by God through Christ's perfect obedience and his substitutionary atonement. The gospel, listen, is not something we do. It's something that has been done for us in Christ on the cross. And yet the gospel results in a whole new way of life. That's the result. In other words, we receive the gospel, the gospel, adoption into the family of God, forgiveness of sins by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and, and all its declaratives. It's our new identity. It's an indicative. It's all that God has declared we are because we've been forgiven by him. And that's not the same as the imperatives, the commands. They're connected, they're related, but they should not be confused. We come by grace alone, through faith alone, and our response or the result is an obedient life. And Jesus says, you know that you're an adopted child of God. Look what it says. If you do what? If you obey. If you will show yourself as a children as you live your life according to my word. It flows from the gospel. Now, our text this morning, Jesus has been teaching and preaching. He's teaching his disciples. We're back to another example of the kingly power of Jesus. Again, his exercise of authority, his powerful you know, display of miracles is not just simply a display of raw power. Rather, it is a means to demonstrate not only compassion and love that he has toward others, but more importantly, I think, more importantly, it is a display or it is, it is a revelation of who Jesus really is. And we see that in the text. We see that in the text. You see the, last, the very last question. Who then is this? Who could do such things? Well, that's the question for us today. So three headings we'll see as we ask, who, who can, why does the wind and the sea obey him? We'll see the peace of Christ. Jesus is resting. We'll see the panic of the disciples. They're in fear mode. And then finally, we'll see the power of God as Jesus rebukes the, sin, uh, the sea and the waves. So number one, peace. Look at verse 22 with me again. One day, he got into a boat. That's Jesus with his disciples. That's the 12 at least. And he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, verse 23a, and as they sailed, he, Jesus, fell asleep. Now, this historical record of what took place, um, thankfully, has been reported or recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels. Synoptics means similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar. Okay? Mark says this happened after the parable of the sowers, actually. Jesus, we know, is somewhere near the western shore of the Galilee. We know from the gospel of Mark that it's coming to dark. It, it's it's it's, it's evening time where the sun is going down. We also know from Mark and Luke, as it says in our text here, that Jesus decided that it was time to move on to the other side of the lake. He turns to his disciples, he says, now let's go, it's time to go. Maybe, it was, maybe, maybe in part it was the pressure of the crowds. It reached a point where Jesus could no longer stay and he's just like, look, we gotta get out of here, it's time to move on. 
We already know from earlier in, in Jesus' ministry in chapter 4, verse 43, he told the people of Cap- uh, Capernaum, I can't stay here, I've got to go. My job is to preach the gospel of the kingdom. The king has come and I need to preach that gospel to every single, uh, you know, to every other, na- other uh, villages and, and towns. We also know from earlier texts that there's large crowds following him. I mean, these villages aren't very big, but he has got a crowd, man. He is going from village to village, town to town. A lot of people are, are following him. And it's just, listen, just think about that. I mean, Jesus is getting busier and busier and busier by the day. More and more people are coming. More and more people are hurt. And he's exhausted. He needs rest. Now, let me just say this before we move on. I think it's important. We've we mentioned it before. I want to do it again. We'll see it in this text. No one in the first century, after these gospel writers finished their work, no one would read this account and believe or think or imagine that this narrative was anything but a real historical event. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, it says he fell asleep. Mark says this in chapter 4, that Jesus was in the stern. I had to look that up. It's the back of the boat. Asleep on a cushion. The people of Jesus' day would not have read that and think it was a fable. Why? Because they, don't, they did not write fables, folklore, and legends in that manner in Jesus' day. It wasn't until a thousand years later where legends and folklore would be written in, with such great detail. They just didn't do it in Jesus' day. In fact, C.S. Lewis, he's a great reader of literature, he, this is what he wrote. I have been reading poems, romances, and vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are. I know what they are like, he says. None of them are like the Gospels. Of the Gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reporting historical reporting or some unknown ancient writer with no predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative 2,000 years ahead of its time then it happened, and the reader who doesn't see this is simply have not learned to read, end quote. In other words, no one wrote like this. Legends and myths. See, these are eyewitnesses. This, this is an eyewitness account, a memory of someone who was there. And people say, well, why does that matter? It matters today, family, because people like to say things like the church made up this historical Jesus. We really don't know. These are myths and legends that they put together. The problem is, legends, myths, and, and, and folklore was not written and doesn't fit reality of that day. That's not the way they wrote it in that day. In other words, they, they wrote this way. Nobody else did before them. Nobody else did after them for a thousand years, and it just vanished when they had it. And nobody believes that. There's no integrity if you believe that. That is not what happened. No, this account, listen, and it's important, is a historical account from an eyewitness testimony. Let that sink in. Think. Jesus commands his disciples to take him to the other side of the lake, goes back to the boat, finds a cushion, and goes to sleep. Let's not forget, he's fully human, right? The narrative here really testifies to the humanity of Christ. He's weary, heavy demands of teaching, People are are pulling at him, constantly demanding, teaching for help, for healing. Jesus needs rest so bad, he's looking for a a back of the boat and a cushion to sleep on. 
He's prone to physical weakness like we are. And that points to his perfect humanity. To see Jesus asleep it not only points to his full humanity, but his real body and the limitations that the human body has. He understood what it meant to be hungry, to be tired. He understood what it meant to be thirsty, to know and to feel rejection, to know and to feel hurt and anger. He was tempted. He suffered. He died. He experienced the full range of, the full range of ordinary, non-sinful emotions. He was weary. The day was over. He was tired. He was exhausted. Leaving the crowd behind, he gets into the boat. Now, remember, he's getting into the boat with who? His disciples. Who were they? Well, a lot of them were fishermen. Right? A lot of them were fishermen. As he gets into this boat, he's with professional fishermen. Now, don't think rowboat. I know sometimes we see that. Uh, maybe when Jesus was walking in the water, he saw pictures, but this incident is not a rowboat. It's not the Titanic, okay? But it's a larger boat. It's a fishing boat. It says they sailed, not rowed. There's urgency here. They're in this fishing boat. They're sailing. Jesus has been preaching, answering questions, healing people for quite some time. He's exhausted, and he's always on the move, and he tells his disciples, who are fishermen, let's get in the boat and let's go. And there he is, finds a place to sleep. Now, I don't think that the text simply or only is telling us that Jesus is sleeping simply to point to his exhaustion and his humanity, although that is true. I get that. But what we should see in this text, in this verse, now listen, is the confidence the confidence that Jesus Christ had in resting in his Father's sovereignty. Absolutely trusting in the Father's care and totally absent of any fear. When we get tossed around by the circumstances of this world, what do we do? Right? We, we mistrust, mistrust God. We're, we are concerned to the point where we are in panic like them. But when the heart of Jesus was perfectly calm, so much so because he was in the care, the peaceful, resting care of his Father. How often, how often do we toss to and fro in worries of this world, right? How many, how many, don't have to answer this, how many number, uh, how many nights, number of nights have we tossed and turned, had sleepless nights, and here's Jesus asleep, right through a major storm. We'll see, the water's coming in. He's soaked and sleeping. To stay, in the, to stay asleep in the storm, and not only because he was exhaust, uh, exhausted, but had complete assurance that he's in the Father's care, sleeping without a single worry resting in the arms of God. First Peter, same guy who wrote this, who same guy was in the boat, said this, when he suffered Jesus, he did not threaten, but continually entrusted himself, placing his, himself under the, the care of his father, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Deep down he knew, I'm safe. I could sleep. My father will wake me if I need to. He's in control, okay? And, and family, there, uh, there, there's a big difference between worrying and being concerned. It's a hard issue. Worrying, being concerned. Worrying or planning. 
right? I, I think it's, it's biblical to, to plan ahead. It, it's wise to, to have resources for the future. It's normal to be somewhat concerned about others. If you love people, there's a times where you are concerned. The Apostle Peter in 2 Corinthians planted lots of churches, concerned about the churches. He writes, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care, NIV, concern, he thanks God for it, that I have for you. He cares about you. Earnest care, concern, watchful interest in something or someone. Yet in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us not to worry, New American Standard, or be anxious, ESV, about your life. It comes from the Greek word merameho, which means, this is important, being torn in different directions. It means to be distracted or, or divided. In fact, Matthew 6, the context is those who want to love and serve money and those who love and want to be devoted to God. There's, there's a distraction. There is a, there is a divide. Matthew 6, double-minded, double-hearted. And that's really the issue between concern and worry. Worry is being torn in two different directions like faith and fear. That will produce worry. That will produce worry. And here in the text, Jesus shows us what a single-minded man looks like to live by the kind of faith, believing that God is in control with absolute reliance at the end of the day on him alone. Not being torn in different directions, faith and worry, faith and fear cannot coexist. When we think that our lives and, and the circumstances of our lives and the situations we find ourselves in are ultimately in our own hands, we worry. We worry, we worry about money, we worry about kids, all kinds of things. We, we, we agonize over situations at work. These are many other things that come at us during the day, during the week, during the month, during the year, whatever it is, keep us up at night, let's be honest. But it becomes a problem if we don't deal with it. It becomes a heart issue when we don't deal. We have a divided heart. It brings anxiety, it brings worry, it brings fear rather than trust. It can be destructive. Why? Because in the end of the day, when worry has racked our brains and we are consumed with it, we are what? We're playing God. As if we have control over things and we can't control it and we worry about it. Right? If we're honest, we worry because we're not trusting God's care for us. We're not resting in the Father's care as Jesus here is resting in the midst of a storm. You know, that's why when the scriptures teach, and also we emphasize here, the sovereignty of God. It's not so we could go do whatever we want. It's that at the end of the day, we trust God. We trust God at the end of the day. We're learning to rely, to trust, to completely rest in God's perfect and holy and sovereign purposes and plans for us and those we love. The peace of Jesus Let's look at the panic. Verse 23b. And a windstorm came down from the lake, and they, were, and, and they were filled, the boat was filled with water, and were in what? Danger. Again, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, at least four of those men were fishermen by trade. They lived around the Sea of Galilee, or also known as Gesenerat, their whole life. This may have been the most turbulent storm they ever faced, but it certainly wasn't the first storm they ever faced. Luke calls it a windstorm that came down. Matthew, in Matthew's gospel account, he implies that, uh, that the storm came without warning. It may have came by surprise, but really was no surprise to have a storm. 
Leon Morris, the Lake of Galilee is subject to sudden storms. Situated some 700 feet below sea level and adjacent to mountainous regions. Cold air from the heights is apt to sweep down the precipitous, the dangerous, high, deep gorges of the east and whip up the seas in a short period of time, okay? Now, I want us to, to, to think about this for a minute, okay? That's what narratives are, right? To, to think through what does this look like. You have, you have the Mediterranean Sea, large water body. You have these mountains around the lake, Mount Hermon, 9,000 feet. And it drops down to, what, 700 feet where, the, where Galilee is. There's ravines, there's valleys. Cold wind will come across the Mediterranean, come down the mountain into the valleys. I mean, think about this. Hit that warm air and settle down. And it would just stir and create this incredible storm very, very quickly as the clouds come rolling in. And we're, we're talking about this clashing of cold and warm water. Lots of storms, not like a gust of wind, but breaking with, with black clouds, thunder clouds, continuous gusts of wind, floods of pouring rain. Luke actually, like I said, he said windstorm could be translated hurricane. Matthew, in his gospel account, he used a word that could be translated, could be translated earthquake. That's how bad it is. And the boat is filling with water, and they're in danger of sinking. Now, I'm not a professional fisherman. Put yourself in there, right? They probably pull the sails down, right? They pull the sails down as, as the boat is being pounded by the wind and the waves. And moment by moment, they're losing hope of making it back to the shore. They're, they're, they're bailing water for their dear life. You ever been bailing water for dear life? Going through life and you're thinking, I got this. I could do this. I've been on this lake before. I've done this before. I've got this, God. Everything is under my control. And then all of a sudden, a storm hits and threatens you. You lose your job. You suffer some financial difficulties. You're drowning in worry. You have a negative diagnosis. You're struggling with uh, uh, illnesses, a chronic illness, and your floods are flooded with fear. Maybe your spouse or child reveals things to you and you, you have pain and you have conflict and you, and you feel like you're sinking. Or maybe someone you love has died and you're drowning in sorrow. At some point in some time we'll find ourselves in the waters of tribulation, in the waves bashing our boat. Again, Peter writes this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What's interesting is the Old Testament, I'll just read uh, one or two verses to you, speaks this kind of language, drowning and the waves, to, to express the experience of intense personal difficulty. Some of you love the Psalms, because we can relate to the Psalms. They're emotional uh, and very relatable. Psalm 42, 7, all your waves and breakers have gone over me. Psalm 69.1, save me, O God, from the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the deep mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Have you ever felt that way? I have. And there's Jesus, peacefully in the midst of the storm, sound asleep on a cushion. The contrast can't be any more stark or 
remarkable. Disciples are powerless. They see the circumstances before them, and they panic. Jesus is resting in, 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 in sovereign peace in the midst of a raging storm. What do we take away from that? Jesus knows that the best way to show us, them and you and I today, that we are falsely and temporarily clinging to things and to stuff that will never save, that will never satisfy us. And the way he does that is to reveal through a storm what exactly we're truly clinging to, what exactly we're clinging to for safety and for security, and he does it sometimes in a storm. Storms expose a dark reality of the things that we cling, that never satisfy things, that we hold on to. It reveals idols in our life, the hardness of our hearts. Sometimes our disobedience brings a storm. We all know that to be true. But here they're in the middle of a storm because Jesus said, get in the boat and take me to the other side. They find Jesus Jesus' will in obedience to his will, and they find themselves in the midst of a storm. That's why I hate the prosperity gospel. Come to Jesus, all your troubles will vanish. Come to Jesus, you have nothing to worry about. Come to Jesus, emotionally, psychologically, physically, all your difficulties will be dissolved away. Yeah, okay. Sometimes come to Jesus means there are storms coming, you have no idea. Sometimes come to Jesus means you're going to have difficulty in trials that because it is because you came to Jesus by simply doing what he says. Coming to Jesus, walking with Jesus brings trouble in our lives. And although the disciples experienced fear rather than faith, as we shall see, there's some things they did that we could say, hey, you know, that was good. They're in the boat, it's, it, the, the wind is pouring, and one thing they don't do when they face the fear of the storms, they don't start thinking irrationally, like let's, let's try to swim to safety, right? Get out of a sinking ship and try to swim. Many a fireman will tell you that people will jump from a fire, 400 you know, feet, 12, 15 stories. Fear of the fire will have them do some things that are somewhat irrational. And the temptation is that when a storm and trials come to jump from the firing pan, right, they say into the fire. But we need to keep doing what we know is right. When the seas rage and the trials come, keep doing, keep walking, keep doing what you know to be the right thing to do. Also, I want you to notice that the disciples did not say, hey, you know what, we, the water's coming in, we're going to drown any minute now, but you know how tired Jesus was? Let's not wake him. He's exhausted. He, he, he's had it hard. He's been, he's been pushing it, man. He's working around the clock. You see his face when he went to sleep? He was tired. He needs his rest. Let's not bother him. I got an idea. Let's get bigger buckets. Let's try harder. We could do this, and maybe when we have worked our fingers to the bone and we have no place else to go, then maybe we'll ask Jesus for help. Yeah, they were afraid. Even though they were with Jesus, with all his, he just raised someone from the dead. He did all these miracles. They're still with him. But I'll tell you why. At least they woke him. Look at verse 24, right? Rather than being paralyzed in their fears and not able to move, and they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Listen, when we are in danger, let us cry out to Jesus. Master, we're perishing. 
I know we should lean on each other, and we should, but first and foremost, we run to Jesus. We look to Jesus for help in time of need. Whether we're struggling to meet the needs of our family, we're rocked by disappointment, we're burdened with conflict, we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus for patience, we look to Jesus for endurance, we look to Jesus for peace and comfort in his presence. But most importantly this morning, family, we are, when we are burdened with our sin and shame, we must cry out to Jesus. Asking God for mercy. Asking Jesus to forgive us through the cross and his empty tomb. In every rough, and, every rough and stormy gale, even to the point of death itself, call upon Jesus. He's in the boat. He's on us with the ride. He has given us the promise of his everlasting presence, and we could depend on him even when we are in a desperate, desperate situation. It reminds me of Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Amen. All of us face trials. All of us face fear. No one's prone to it. Like many of us, I don't think, I don't think the disciples said, you know what? Uh... I think Jesus is trying to teach us something here. He's sleeping, we're struggling, he's out like a light, and we're panicking with fear. Maybe he's trying to help us to grow. It's true. Without difficulties, trials, and stresses, even failures, we don't grow in the likeness of Christ and our sanctification. Storms are a vital part of the, of the process of spiritual growth. And they're going to learn that. And sometimes in the midst of our struggles, we learn that as well, right? It's sometimes when we get to the end of ourselves, when we're digging, we're, 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 we're trying to get the water out of the boat, man. We're like, listen, I've done all I can, man. I, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm, I'm waking up Jesus. Like, I need help. It's then when God comes to us and, and we could drink deeply of his love. We could drink deeply of his grace. We can drink deeply of his presence. Are you, amidst, are you in the midst of a storm? Are you battling fear and confusion? Let me encourage you. According to this text, God will meet you in your deepest distress. God will allow him, yourself to go through this so he could reveal himself. And, and then, you can, then he will come and he'll calm your fears. He'll calm your fears through the gospel by his presence and his power. You have the peace of Christ, the panic of the disciples, Oop, let me go back. Can you go back one for me? Yeah, one, uh, good. Thank you. Chapter 8, 24. And he awoke, okay, and rebuked the wind, the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was what? A calm. A calm. The display of Jesus' humanity as he's exhausted and resting. The display of his divinity as he rebukes the wind and the calms the seas. Which should not be a surprise to us. If you remember, back in Genesis chapter 1, God in his creative act, what they call out of ex nihilo, out of nothing, creates all that we see. Right? Remember that? He said, he said let there be, let there be. Let there be light and there was light. Let there be waters, there was water. Let there be moon, there was star. He spoke existence. Created by his spoken word. And in John chapter 1, 
If the Bible says, in the beginning was the word, reflection of Genesis 1, in the beginning was God. In the beginning, before creation, was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, to all my Jehovah Witness, all things, meaning Christ was not a created being, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14, And that Word, who was God, with God, Creator God, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14. John says at the very beginning, before creation, God the Father made all things through the word, through the Son, and nothing was created apart from the agency of the Son. Right? That is why we read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. We did that a, a while back. For by him, that's Jesus, all things were what? Created. In heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, with thrones, with dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And here is Jesus in our text, creator of the universe, rebuking the wind and the raging seas. Rebuke. Epitomile, it means to, to, to admonish very sharply. Luke chapter 4. Jesus is in church, synagogue, is a demon-possessed man in the church. He starts crying out when he sees Jesus. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of Israel. Jesus turns to him and rebukes him, eptimio, sharply rebukes him. And he says to the demon-possessed man, be silent and come out of him. And he did. And the man was Released from bondage. Same word rebuked. In fact, in, Mark, in Luke 4, when it says be silent, when he tells him to be silent, it means to be muzzled. It means to, to close your mouth. And that's exactly what Jesus does on the sea of Galilee. He rebukes the storm. In the gospel according to Mark, he actually tells the wind and the seas to be silent, to be muzzled. Martin Luther would say to shut up. Notice he, he didn't roll up his sleeves, call upon someone, wave a wand, some higher power as you come to understand him. No, Jesus does what God alone can do. By his command, he rebukes the wind, he rebukes the sea, and he tells the hurricane to be quiet, shut up, and be calm. The reason that it did, because the seas and the waves all of creation has heard that voice before. This is the voice that had previously spoke and created. It was the word of God that spoke the world and the wind and the waves into existence. His name is Jesus. And here Jesus enters into his own creation, stands up and speaks to creation. And guess what? It obeys him because he's the agent of creation. The same one who spoke into the world, excuse me, spoke this world into existence, just gave it a command to obey, and it did. And you think the disciples say, wow, man, that was so cool, amazing. You must be God. Verse 25, where's your faith? And they were what? Afraid. They marveled. 
And they said to one another, who then is this? That he commands even winds and water and they obey him. Now I'm not quite sure. Raising someone from the dead or doing this, I don't know which is a greater miracle. But again, the basic truth, fear and faith cannot coexist. In fact, the fear of disciples overwhelmed their faith. They looked at the dangerous circumstances. It blinded them from seeing that they are safe with Jesus. Rather than trusting God to care for them, they immediately thought the worst. We are perishing. We are perishing. The assumption is God doesn't know. God doesn't care. And God is just asleep on, the, on, on, on what's going on in my life. And sometimes, if we're honest, when we are facing fear, maybe even particularly fear of death, it could be frightening. It could be overwhelming. And we could wonder, does God really care? Right? Most of the time, we, you know, we, most of us remember a time where we feel like, you know what? I'm drowning, I'm drowning, I'm going down, and it feels like I'm going down for the very last time. Where are you? You know, no matter how desperate our situation, we should always trust, place our faith in Christ that he will bring us back to the shore. Why? Because, listen, family, the storms of the world and the storms of your life are under the sovereign control of God. The disciples were in a storm because Jesus himself told them to go in the lake. He's in full authority and sovereignty over every chain of event that happens in this passage. God's not the author of evil, nor does he participate in darkness, but he is sovereign over it. He bends it, he uses it, he allows it, and even sends and guides storms into our lives to accomplish what he is working and doing in us. If Jesus, now listen, if Jesus has the infinite power, and he does, if he has infinite power to tell the wind and the seas to shut up and sit down, then he has the infinite power to allow storms to come into our lives for a purpose. J.C. Rao. By afflictions, he teaches us many precious lessons, which without it, we should have never learned. We would never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world, and makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning, we shall say, it is good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm, end quote. That's a great quote. And notice this fear of the storm turned into fear of awe of God. They were afraid and they marveled. It was, it was a reverence. I mean, imagine it for a moment. I mean, you could say, you know what? The wind just stopped. Hmm. What a coincidence. Jesus commanded the winds to stop and they, it's not breezy anymore. How do you get a whole ocean to stop dead silent? You can't. Only God can. To have all of a sudden the waves bashing, have one second complete serenity over the water. I mean, think about that. A display of infinite power, and now it has revealed to them and overwhelmed them with feelings of reverent fear, transcendent awe. Remember, it's not a work of a magician. He's not looking for an applaud. The goal of the miracles that Jesus does is to help us to become more certain about who he is. This episode should increase our understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to accomplish. So the question, who is this that rebukes the winds, the sea, and they listen to him, becomes rather simple. It is Jesus, the fully man and fully God, the one who is exhausted on the, on the uh, uh, cushion and the one who is awoken and called out creation and it obeyed. 
proof of his deity, proof of his omnipotent power. I mean, listen to what the Old Testament says about God and the power and authority over chaos and the sea. Psalms 65, 7, he is praised. God is praised as the one who stills the roaring of the seas. Psalm 89, you rule the raging of the sea when it waves uh, rise. You still them. Psalm 107, for he, God, commanded and raised a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. What you have here is the sovereign creator, Jesus, reigning and ruling to the degree that the wind and the waves and the sea obey him. Do you remember the story of Jonah? Like Jesus, he too went into a boat out on the water. Both Jesus and Jonah were both overtaken by a storm. Both Jesus and Joseph were asleep during the storm. The sailors in both stories came to the one who was sleeping and said the same thing. We are perishing. In both stories, there is a miraculous intervention by God, and the storm is calmed. It is stilled. In both stories, the, 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 the sailors uh, were even more terrified after the storm was calmed than during the storm. They were all afraid. There's one glaring difference between the two stories, if you know it. In the story of Jonah, what happens? He gets thrown overboard so that the sailors don't perish. Jonah 1-2, pick me up, Jonah says, throw me out into the sea, and the sea will become calm for you. Yet Jesus was not thrown overboard. Or was he? In verse 24, it says that they awoke him, and he awoke. The Greek word literally means that they raised him, and having been raised... In the gospel accounts, when someone is healed, when, when the power of God has been displayed, they use that word raise, igiero, or its root. In chapter uh, 8, verse 55, Jesus will, raise, Jesus will raise a young girl from the dead, and it says to her in verse 55, he tells it to arise, same word. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. The Son of Man must also suffer. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, that's the cross, and on the third day, same word, be raised. You see it? Jonah was tossed overboard into the storm to save people from perishing. Jesus Christ was tossed into the storm of the penalty of our sin, taking the storm, the waves of the Father's wrath as our substitute, and then raised from the dead. And that is the only storm that we cannot escape is the wrath of God. But Jesus Christ makes a way. Our eternal punishment for our sins were paid for and nailed to the cross. And there on the cross, Jesus was thrown into an ultimate storm. The waves of sin and death. And because he was raised, we can have confidence that he will see us through the storms in our life. Listen, if you see that this morning, if you see that Jesus was tossed in that storm of God's wrath for you as your substitute, taking our sin and our punishment, rising from the dead, listen, there's not a storm going on in your life that you could say he doesn't care. He doesn't know. He doesn't love. Just look at the gospel. He proved his love for you by being tossed into that ultimate storm. The storm of eternal damnation and raised victorious over sin, death, 
and judgment. The most important question this morning is who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? He's the wrath-absorbing, sin-bearing Savior risen from the dead. No matter what storms you face, that's the most important storm that you need that answer. Who is this Jesus? As the band comes up, they're going to sing a song, a song written by a man by the name Horatio Spotford, Spotford, a Christian lawyer in Chicago, nice home, uh, a wife, four daughters, and a son, and at the height of his financial and uh, professional success, him and his wife Anna suffered a tragic loss of their only son. And then in October 8, 1871, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed a lot of the real, real estate, and he lost much in his finances. Two years later, Spofford scheduled a boat trip to go to Europe for his wife and his four children's daughters. Sent his wife and his four kids ahead of him and said, I'll get there when I get there from Chicago. Several days later, he received a notice that the ship carrying his family sank. All four of his daughters drowned and died. Only his wife had survived. And with a heavy heart, he, he boarded a boat that would take him to his grieving wife, Anna, who was in England. It was on the boat that he penned the famous words, When sorrow like sea billows roll, it is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. But what's amazing about the song is that in the midst of this great and horrific storm and tragedy, the ultimate comfort for him, and we're going to sing that, as he stood on this boat looking over the sea that had swallowed up his four children, he wrote these words also. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All my sins swallowed up by Jesus. Tragedy. Deep sorrow. In the midst of a broken and twisted world, he has recognized that now how broken and stormy that is, nothing compares to the everlasting storm of being separated from God. And he shouts out, but my sin has been forgiven. I'll see my children. What's most importantly, family, this morning is the storm that's coming when God judges the world. But good news is Jesus Christ has died in your place and for your sin. Toss into that storm so that you can have life. Do you know that this morning? Jesus willingly was placed in a storm of sin and wrath so that you don't have to. Let us bow in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for this narrative. Thank you that you have recorded it for us. And God, we pray that as we sing this song and we, we think of tragedies, we think of sorrows, we think of storms, ultimately, God, help us to, put, to set our mind, our heart, and our affections on the one eternal storm that Jesus Christ has endured for us. And that no matter what happens in this world and this life, the storm of damnation has been swallowed up. Jesus has died in our place. He took the wrath we deserve. He rose from the dead, has been raised. And now, God, we have eternal life with you that you love and care for us. So, Father, help us to respond in faith, trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as we respond in music. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.